Welcome back to the Like a Bigfoot podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ward. And this week we're talking to Esther Harani. And yeah, man, she's, if you don't know much about Esther, she uh, is just a badass. I don't know how else to put it. Um, she's a mountain biker, bike packer, ultra runner. Um, she lives the, the scamp life, uh, which means um, her and her boyfriend, Scott, who's been on the show Previously, um, they basically travel around living in a in a little camper uh, on public lands. So, so yeah, she lives and embraces the life of adventure, the life of the outdoors, the life of just exploring. And she's awesome. I really have appreciated um, getting to know her and Scott over the last year just uh you know we had Scott on the podcast Scott Morris number 40 um and just I got to meet them once we went for a run for a couple hours so it was really awesome and she's just a wonderful wonderful person and uh really excited to have her on to kind of promote the idea of getting out into these wild places and getting out into the wild and you know forming a relationship with with a place like with nature and with these badass public lands that we are so lucky to have here in the United States. So, so yeah, uh, in this episode, we really get into her life, uh, of adventure, her life as an athlete. She's gone through a, a few different phases from uh, cyclist to mountain biker to, uh, recently, taking on a few ultra runs and in her third race ever she stepped up to the plate of the Ure 100 which is one of the most intense ultra running races in the United States uh based off of altitude gain and like ruggedness and and all of that and uh yeah she just happened to get second place <laughs> in the event so uh yeah she's She's a pretty special person, um, pretty awesome, just solid mindset. And she basically like, I I get the feeling from her of what all great ultra endurance athletes should be. She's very like go with the flow, you know, like kind of hard to even explain her mindset during a race where it's like, no, I just, I just kept going and I just kind of pushed through and it didn't let anything bother me and I was flexible and I, I went with the fluidity and the like I said flexibility of trying to do an ultra endurance race where if you go in with the mindset of none of this is going to go as planned then you're able to walk away with success and if you go in with the mindset of you know I have to over plan and everything has to go exactly right you're going to be faced with a bit of disappointment. So, so yeah, that's something I really took away from this conversation and talking with her. And, you know, I just hope you guys take away the idea of getting out and exploring because we have all these special areas in the U.S. And if you follow Esther on uh, Facebook or Instagram, and I'll be sure to link all that stuff in the uh, show notes here, um, but if you follow her on all that, you can see that she and her and Scott, they are able to experience some 
pretty unbelievable places. And hopefully that'll inspire you to go out and and check these places out as well. Um, her blog is zenondirt.wordpress.com. She's a really funny, engaging writer. Her pictures are amazing. Her and Scott's photography is just fantastic. And, you know, she'll give it up to basically just the beauty of the places they go more than their skills as photographers. But I gotta say, they're pretty skilled photographers too. Um, but yeah, so definitely check that out. And her Instagram is EZTheNomad. Um, and yeah, get ready. Like you're gonna see some amazing, beautiful pictures and they're about to go on an adventure in New Zealand, which we get into a little bit at the end of the conversation. So be sure to follow her. Um, and if you enjoyed today's episode, definitely check out the previous episode with Scott uh, kind of talks about some of the same ideas of bikepacking and nomadic living and all that really awesome kind of amazing things uh, that these two bring to the table. So check that out. Uh, if you like the episodes, then go on iTunes, subscribe, review. Um, yeah, check out the other podcasts we've done. This is number 69. So we have 68 other episodes Every guest brings their own little spin to the idea of the like a Bigfoot mindset, which is all about adventure and really, I mean, get out and experience life. Love the people you're around. I know we're on the Thanksgiving holiday and it could be stressful with family, but I mean, man, like cherish your time together. And if you can combo that with cherishing your time together in the beautiful nature and wilderness areas that we have in the United States, even better. So really enjoy, enjoy your weekend guys. Be thankful, be grateful. You have so much in your life that is positive and, and really, you know, just take that all in this weekend. All right, let's get into the episode. Um, hope you guys enjoy this conversation like a Bigfoot podcast number 69 with Esther Harani. Harani. Harani? Yep. Okay. Completely phonetic. Okay. <laughs> How many <laughs> oh, teachers... No, I've, I've heard so many variations of that. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. How many teachers messed that up the first day of school? So many, but it's like what's so funny to me is that it is like completely phonetic. Like there's nothing tricky about it. <laughs> but just somehow like it says it's not an American last name. People just look at it and like panic and make something up. <laughs> yeah. They try to but. cover. They they make it more complicated than it is. They do. They really like they add syllables and add letters and just shout it out. It's phonetics. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. I kind of feel for the teachers because I've been there. I've done the same thing where mm -hmm. I'm like overcomplicate words, and they're like, "No, man, it's really simple." <laughs> mm -hmm. So, yep, awesome. Well, do you want to start going? Sure, let's do it. All right. So, welcome to the show, Esther Harani. Wait, did I say that right this time? Yes. yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I wanted to have you on the show for so many reasons. But uh, first of all, I just have to say, um, when I do the podcast, I usually ask for like a cover photo, you know, like of the guest doing something badass. 
And I, I have to say for you, it's probably going to be impossibly hard to pick out one badass photo. Well, I mean, I can I can choose something that looks probably more impressive than it actually is. <laughs> <laughs> I just like following your pictures and your adventures. Like you guys are always in these amazing places and just exploring the the West out here. It's it's really cool. I mean, the West is a huge place and it's, it's pretty easy to take cool photos when you're in amazing places. So I guess you can't really give credit to us as, or to me as a photographer. It's much more, uh, give the credit to the landscape. Yeah. Yeah. I try to tell people that like, cause I just, I'm just like, I just wake up early and, uh, go for a run on a trail and it's going to be pretty, you know? I mean, sometimes it's really hard to screw up a photo. <laughs> Like you can have no skills whatsoever. You can still take a pretty photo if you're in the right place at the right time. Yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. So, so yeah, I kind of want to, uh, I guess we can start, let's, uh, start by chatting about the Ure 100 cause you did this race a couple months ago and I've been like on the edge of my seat to hear about it ever since. <laughs> so the Ure 100, it's a hundred mile race in Southwestern Colorado. I think this is its fourth or fifth year or this past year was its fourth or fifth year running and I really had no business running it to be completely honest but last year I'd run the 50 also having no business doing it and finished it and basically just fell in love with the race like the race organizers super amazing and it's equal payout to men and women which is such a rare thing in any sort of ultra endurance sport or any sport in general. That's really, that's really cool that they, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's really cool that they do that. Is that like, I mean, did you talk to the race directors about making that decision? I mean, he's very much, he's just a progressive human being and things like women run the full hundred miles. Like they should get paid the same amount as the men who run that hundred miles. Like it's no easier for us. It's no harder for us, but it's equal. Yeah. Which I think is like when I when I was like hemming and hawing of like should I do this race because like my quote unquote fitness wasn't exactly there and like I knew there was a high chance of injury if I did it I was like but you know this is a race that I want to support just at a very fundamental level like I believe in like big burly races and big on big remote mountains and equal payout to men and women like that is something I want to stand behind and support and so that was that's sort of a big factor in me going in and doing it. Yeah. That's awesome. So, okay. I remember we went for a run. I ran with you and Scott down by Denver when you guys were in in Boulder for a few weeks and you were still trying to decide if you were really going to sign up for it. Um, and this was probably only like a month out (laughs) or something. Yeah. (laughs) Do you, and I, Um, I, I read your blog and you just kind of started by saying, poor life choices often make for the best stories. So <laughs> well, they do, don't they? <laughs> they do. Yeah. Um, so what, like what I mean, made everything you, we did was scripted and planned. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What's, what's the fun in that? That's true. And Ure is like a beast of a race. Like how much do you like off the top of your head? I don't know if you know this or not, but how much elevation is there? So I believe that it's 43,000 feet of <sighs> elevation gain and loss over 100 miles and so to put it in perspective the hard rock 100 which is sort of like the it's the race that all ultra runners want to get into yeah at all times like it's like the gold standard of races has 38,000 feet of climbing so it's it's 
vertical wide is even burlier than the Hard Rock 100. That's insane. And it's in the like the prettiest area of Colorado, right? Like the San Juan Mountains. Oh, it is. Mm-hmm. So the San Juan, so the south corner of the state, and it's just, it's just beautiful. Like there's really like a, unless you're there and you see it, like there's no way to really describe these yeah. peaks. Like they're just breathtakingly amazing. Yeah, that's what I hear. I still haven't. I need to make like we're doing a road trip this summer. I, that's definitely like number one on the on the trip. Mm-hmm. I, you should definitely. I mean, the thing is, like each of the mountain ranges in Colorado are so unique, and uh, the San Juans are just and they're in a league of their own. They're my, definitely my favorite mountains in Colorado. Yeah, that's People so cool. play in. So did that come into play, like for signing up for the race? I mean, along with you know what you what you just mentioned. I definitely it's like if I if someone was like here's a really great race with equal payoff for men and women but it's a hundred flat miles through Kansas yeah I know no offense to Kansas <laughs> but <laughs> I mean I would maybe not be as inclined to do it because I think a lot of like the reason that I race or do these things is to see new and beautiful places and so like for me I draw a lot of inspiration about from the location of an event and so it's like having it in this spectacular location and, and getting to see a hundred miles of these mountains that I normally wouldn't see or like would have to spend three or four or five days seeing on my own. It was definitely a big push to, to sign up for something like this. Yeah. Yeah. Were, were you even looking at it as a race or were you just like, this is a run that I'm doing with my friends? I, I call it much more of a hike that I was doing with my friends. <laughs> a super long hike. <laughs> it was a very, it was a super long hike. I mean, the thing is, is that I have someone was like, well, how many miles of the URA did you actually quote unquote run? And I mean, running is so like, how do you define run? Like I shuffle more than I run. But uh, like how much was like in a running stride? It would be maybe, maybe 20 or 30 miles, like definitely less than half. Yeah. Because so much of it is just so steep and on such rugged trail that it's your hiking and then you're trying not to fall flat on your face going downhill. <laughs> or at least that's my experience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's so cool. And this was your first 100 miler too. So not only is it yeah. like the hardest 100, maybe in the nation. I don't know. I'm just saying that. I'm it, not it's definitely sure. <laughs> not the hardest. Like the Barkley, the Barkley, have you heard of the Barkley Marathon? Oh yeah. The in, Barkley uh, is Tennessee. Yeah. That sounds insane. And I, the documentary, yeah. the Barkley documentary is like one of my favorite movies. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I've watched it twice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just cause the, uh, Laz, the race director just is describing the rules and the little quirks of the race. And after every one, he just giggles, you know? He's yeah. Like, he's, he's, <laughs> <laughs> he he like I mean, just for, loves the pain and suffering you know he just makes such a mockery of like <laughs> what people think of ultra running yeah and here you are in the backwoods it's tennessee right i think it's tennessee yeah maybe and, yeah. And, yeah it is it's the and just yeah. it's just such a mockery of like <laughs> what you consider like i don't know the stereotypical ultra run yeah it's just so bare bones and i don't know that's if I ever had the chance to do it, I would definitely do it. I bet you could, I bet you could maybe like, you know how you have to like write a letter apparently. Um, and you have to like know somebody who knows somebody, but I bet you could at least, you know, I oh, bet you totally could totally top in. secret, but no, I could, I could figure it out if I wanted to. Yeah. I don't know if I'd get in. I doubt I'd get in first or second or third or fourth try, but 
it's it's I'm drawn to sort of the more quirky, yeah, not well oiled machine event. Definitely. I guess. Is this how you would describe Uray 100? Like, was it quirky? Was it? I mean, I'm assuming it's just like a very interesting group of people taking this on. Oh, it's a totally bizarre group of people, and it's it is grassroots. Like, if you look. If you look at hard rock and you say, like, that's a very well-oiled, like, you have a lottery and you have this mathematical formula for how many tickets you get in the lottery based on how many times you've applied and how many times you've finished and which pool you're in based on whether you've been accepted before. Like, Yuri is, like, the polar opposite. Like, this is just, like, a bunch of, like, I don't know, quirky people who go run, I don't know. Yeah. It's a lot more grassroots than that, and I... I appreciate that. It's like you never quite know what you're going to find in an aid station. You never quite know if the tents are going to be set up if it's pouring rain at an aid station. But like Charles, the race director, he, like, he definitely pulls it all together amazingly. Like you're sort of like, oh, is this going to happen? Like the start <laughs> is eight minutes late, yeah. which is like for a lot of people, it's like, oh, no, it's a late start. Panic. But it's just like things weren't ready to go at noon. And so you started at noon at late and like no big deal. Yeah. But it's it's much more of a chill and laid back atmosphere than that's than awesome. I think most than many ultras, I guess. Yeah. Well, I think like to excel an ultra run, you have to kind of be willing to go with the flow, you know, like roll with the punches, be flexible and all of that. So yeah, even starting eight minutes late, that's just like, Hey, get ready. You're about to run a hundred miles. Yeah. Things aren't gonna go exactly <laughs> as planned. <laughs> mm-hmm. So. And I think, like, the same thing with, with, like, Laz and the Barclay Marathons, like, making a mockery of, like, the smooth level oil. Like, everyone has a plan. It's like he has the – the race can start anywhere within, like, a 12- or 24-hour period, right? Like, he blows the conch, and then you have to be, what, be ready in an hour. Yeah. And then he has and to so light like his cigarette. Like the, <laughs> right. But then people who are, like, ultra planners and want to, like, have a plan for every minute of every hour, like, those people struggle. Yeah. But there's the people who are able to like, okay, well, I don't know if I'm going to start a race at midnight or 2 a.m. or 4 a.m. or 8 in the morning or noon. Like, those people are the people who excel at yeah. stuff like Barkley and I think who would appreciate the, the sort of quirkiness of your A. Oh, definitely. So did you have a plan at all or were you just like, hey, because I remember talking to you and you were just like, yeah, I can slog forward for a couple of days. Like, you know, I'll be fine. <laughs> Like, did you have a plan going I mean, so, in or not? I mean, the plan was to keep moving. So in my bike packing days, I knew that I could go. The longest I'd gone without sleep was 40 hours in the past. And then things started getting a little bit questionable in my head. So I was like, okay, that's what if I could finish like around 40 hours or close to, I could just a little bit over 40 hours, then then I can probably do it without sleep. But I was like, but the time cut off is 52 hours. And I was like, oh, if it starts pushing, like, if it's looking like it's going to be, like, 52 hours or 50 hours, I might have to sleep. And so I had a tentative plan as far as, like, once we get sort of towards the second half of things, see how the timing goes as far as if I wanted to sleep or not. Um, but, no, I, did, I didn't really have a plan as far as pacing. Like, I don't run with a watch, and I never knew what time it was. I could just sort of, like, eat when I was hungry and drank when I was thirsty and yeah. like I'd, I'd check in like when I was at an aid station and I'd say like what time it is or what I'd ask what time it was and make sure I was still ahead of like cutoff time yeah. but uh 
So last last year I raced the 50 mile version, which is basically the second half of the 100 miles. So I've okay. seen all that course, but last year Scott had paced me for the last 10 miles, which goes up the Bridge of Heaven, which is this just steep 5,000 foot climb and back down. And last year I'd done it um, in the middle of the night. It was like from 3 a.m. or 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. So we were in the dark most of it. And this year I had three pacers. My friend Kurt, Danielle, and Scott were also going to pace. And Scott was so adamant about not wanting to do Bridge of Heaven in the dark because he'd done it once in the dark before. And he was like, don't make me do that in the dark again. Ugh. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, well, you can do. And basically, I was, I was saying that I'll probably be like right on the cutoff times. And so I was like, sort of plan on me around those times. And Scott was going to do um, mile 75 through 85 or whatever it is. But uh, I ended up coming in like seven hours faster than I thought I was going to. And Scott was busy trying to get the 50 milers going because he was running the spot tracking for the 50 mile race. And so he had to be there for the start to get the spot trackers handed out. So I came in to start that leg, like right when he was busy doing that. And so my friend Kurt ended up taking that leg that Scott wanted to take. And then Scott ended up doing the last bridge of heaven in the dark with me again. <laughs> yeah. Was he, Which, was at that point, was he just like, okay, I'm going to like not complain at all because she's like in massive amount of pain right now. I mean, he didn't, I mean, he obviously had a choice, but, uh, he, he was like, I, I definitely fell apart that last 10 miles. Like it was, it was pretty ugly. Like I was doing, I, I was hallucinating. I was seeing faces in the rocks. I was seeing like trees on the side of the trail where like people sitting there. <laughs> and at first I didn't tell Scott that I was hallucinating. I was like, Oh, that's sort of cute. It's in that novel. Hallucinating. Yeah. But then, like, on the way down, I was just in so much pain. Like, my feet were just white and wrinkly and gross, and it just hurt so bad to walk. I started just telling him, like, the faces that I was seeing in the rock, and I was like, oh, there's an Indian chief head. Oh, there's a horse. Look at that puppy in that rock. <laughs> and so I think he was, I was just pretty amused by it. Actually, he was like, oh, look, my girlfriend is completely losing it. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, she's lost sanity right now. <laughs> yeah. And I get the end it finishes on this like long set of switchbacks on this just like scree like it's scree and a super sharp rock and it's loose and it's just nasty. And uh he's like, Okay, Esther, well we have thirteen switchbacks to go, you've got this. And uh, okay, so we did one, we did another one. There were it was long traverses between the switchbacks. And then there were like these two little mini switchbacks. And I was like, Oh great, switchbacks four and five And Scott was like, Oh, I, those didn't show up on my map, so those actually didn't count as part of the 13 switchbacks. And I just got so angry with them. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess that's what pacers do, right? They try to they try to keep you sane. Yeah, yeah. When you're when you're about to lose it. <laughs> was, okay, so is Scott a good pacer? Like, would you? I mean, has he paced anybody before, or is he, has he just paced you? Oh, just me. Like, we're, like, relatively new to this whole ultra running thing. Like, we we only picked up running maybe, it was fall of 20, I mean, let me think, 2014 maybe we picked up running because I was really burnt out on riding bikes. Yeah. And so I started running, and it was totally the type of thing that we'd go run for a mile and be sore and not be able to walk for a week. <laughs> and so, no, it's like, your, your A50 was my first running race last year, and the 100 was my 
third running race ever. That's insane. So, That's like so I don't crazy. know what <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what constitutes a quote unquote good pacer, but I like having Scott around. So yeah. he's a good pacer for me. That's good. Well, and you ended up getting second place, right? I did. Yes. Wow. Is it I mean, okay. <laughs> That's just mind blowing to me. Um, but I also, you know, you're like a mountain athlete. Would you describe yourself that way? I'm, I'm not. Like I would say a mount. I would say an outdoors person. Okay. Can we go with that? Okay. Because I mean, I, I love mountains, and but I love the desert, and I love canyons, and I like lakes, and I like swimming in lakes, and so to call myself just a mountain athlete is. I that think that's sense. limiting. Yeah, that's not fair to and just think, say mountain, I guess. Yeah. yeah. But, and the term athlete, I always think, is sort of funny. Yeah. I well, think you, it's a human being who yeah. likes to go play outside. <laughs> You're so active, though. Like, that definitely translates, right? Like, into, you know, a racing success, even though you weren't necessarily shooting for that. Oh, for sure. But it's also, like, I have a background in ultra mountain bike racing. So, like, I've ridden divide, which was 19 days of rate of quote unquote racing on a bike. And like I've done the Colorado trail race twice. And so I got the idea of racing 52 hours. Wasn't that intimidating to me because yeah. I've done so much longer. Yeah. And so I guess it's like, I have, I have so much faith in my mental ability to go for that long and stay relatively focused. <laughs> yeah. But I have faith in my body to be able to just move forward for that amount of time. That's really Which cool. I think a lot of people don't have just because it's never, they never done it. But it's like, well, I can, I, can, I can race for 19 days. Surely I can pull off 52 hours. Yeah. Well, when you first started out, like, I guess, can we go back? Like, were you always a mountain biker? Were you always uh, active? I mean, I was a swimmer in high school. Okay. Because I think like in the, the formative years when you're a kid, like second grade-ish, we lived in Tucson, and my parents were very much like, we want our kids in sports, and so they put me into swimming. Yeah. Because when you live in Tucson, that's pretty much like <laughs> the only sport you can do. Yeah. But so I swam all through, mostly through middle school, all through high school, and then like, I really sucked at swimming. Like, I was really pretty terrible. Which is funny, because like, I swam on a team with, uh, do you know Mara Abbott? Um, have you heard of her? No. What's her name? Mara Abbott. She's okay. a former road racer but she ended up third at the olympic or no fourth at the olympics this past summer wow really you should watch that youtube google mara abbott um olympic road race it is the most heartbreaking race oh you will ever watch all right hold on but, i'm uh, looking it up right now it's on youtube what yeah. like so we had oh. oh bike racing yeah road racing oh so wait. we actually swam together okay is this from the last olympics yeah, this is Rio. Oh, yeah. I watched that live. Oh, I remember that. Didn't yeah. she get passed, like, right at the end by, like, four she people? Passed, she got passed by three people That's in it. the side of the finish line. Oh, my God. It was, it was heartbreaking. But yeah. so she was also a swimmer back in the day. Okay. And we were both, like, I don't think she'd take offense if I, was, like, if I said that. Well, we weren't, we weren't as good as swimmers as we ended up bikers yeah <laughs> i guess is the best way to put it <laughs> yeah but she also transitioned from swimming to riding and like immediately had huge success that's awesome but so i swam all through high school and uh then picked up road racing i actually raced on the road for 
two or three years, I guess, seriously. Like I was a cat too. And like went out to California and did all the spring races. And then like, I ended up just seeing like too many girls getting called off in ambulances because road racing is pretty dangerous. It's crazy. Was, was that race this summer, the Olympic one or last summer, whenever it was, was that uh, the race where someone just like severely face planted or was that the men's race? Um, I mean, so the the woman who Mara was riding with, so there's two of them off the front. And the woman who she was riding with actually dropped her on the descent and ended up crashing out of the race. That was it. That was the yeah. scariest thing I've ever seen live, like in sports. Yeah. Because I mean, like the, like if, you watch the, if you watch the mountain stages in the Tour de France, like there are some scary <sighs> crashes. Like, it's like, ugh. <sighs> yeah. That's and crazy. So I, I ended up switching to, yeah. I ended up switching to mountain biking because uh, I got like, I was a pretty good road racer, but then I got left off the uh, the team that went to national for the University of Colorado, which just like was devastating because I thought I was strong enough, and they're like, oh, you just don't have the experience for it. Serious, like at a national level race, and I was it was just it crushed me. Yeah. I was like I deserve to go. Yeah. But then and that was in the spring, and then in the fall, the team was like, Esther, we need mountain bikers, and I was like, ugh. I don't mountain bike. And they're like, we don't care if you like, you just have to ride fast up the hill. And we don't care if you walk your bike down the hill, you just need to finish the race. Cause at the time there were so few women mountain bikers racing, at least at the collegiate level, that as long as you finish the race, you'd score points for the team, which was like, is the big thing is like, you want to, as a team win collegiate nationals. And I was like, Oh, Okay. And it turned out mountain bikers just had so much more fun than the road racers. So <laughs> I pretty like I think I raced the road a little more that spring, but that was a, that was pretty much the beginning of the end of that. And then I, I raced cross country mountain bike for a while. I raced cyclocross for a while. I even raced on the track one, just to say I did. Yeah. Um, and then slowly I just started like building up distances, and I was like, oh, the longer the distance, the better I actually am. And so, like, I did this. I spent a whole summer racing, like, 100 mile, 100 mile mountain bike races. And then, uh, one 24 hours of Moab is my first 24 hour race, which was huge at the time for me. And then got into bikepacking from there. So, wow. I guess I've always been, I guess, being outside of exploring and doing things has always been a central focus of my life. Like, yeah. everything else sort of comes comes after that like making a living and having a career and all that yeah. like, I'll, I'll worry about that later <laughs> <laughs> yeah so can you kind of like i'm trying to just even wrap my head around a collegiate mountain bike event can you kind of like describe it is it long distance is it shorter like where do you do these things <laughs> at so the rocky mountain well so there's um there's four events that is collegiate and there's a cross country which is usually about an hour 45 to like a two hour 15 minute race okay and then there's a short track which is anywhere from like 20 to 30 minutes and it's about short circuits that you race probably five or six times okay and then there's downhill which i actually got talked into racing once or twice and actually did pretty okay and then there's dual slalom where you race or four cross where the dual slalom you race two up and you go through, it's like a slalom 
ski race, I guess. You Whoa, have to go really? And there's jumps and berms, and it's absolutely terrifying. <laughs> but I raced that, too, a couple times. What? <laughs> that sounds terrifying. You're going over ramps and stuff? Yeah, like, they, yeah, people like to huck themselves, and I'm very much, like, a two-wheeled on the ground type of Oh, person. my God. Are you wearing, like, those helmets that, like, cover your whole entire face? Oh, yeah, like, full-face helmets, goggles, like, for downhills, full, like, chest, back pads, arm, like, elbow pads, knee pads. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was, like, full-on. That's did you like, ever... at first, it's like, go ahead. Do you, did you ever, like, crash or wipe out or anything crazy? Yeah, like, at first, like, I was, like, riding super tentative because it was, again, the type of thing that all the teams always need downhill. They need girls to race downhill because you get scored at nationals at your top four people, or you can enter four people for a event. And so you want to have the max number of people if you can get the max number of points. And so, like, at the time, it's, like, if you can walk your bike down the downhill track, you can score points type thing for the women. Like, I think it's cha- it's definitely grown now, like, you you can't quite get away with that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, they talked me into racing downhill, and someone loaned me, like, a super nice downhill bike. And they dressed me up in all these pads, and I was like, oh, my goodness. Like, what am I getting into? And, like, I rode super tentative, like I was riding a cross-country bike. And then I actually crashed and, like, hit the ground, and you just, like, with all the pads on, I just, you just bounce. And I was like, oh, that didn't hurt. That's a game changer right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So but then it you, was a good life experience, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> totally. That's a crazy. I didn't even. Oh wow, I can't even imagine doing that. Yeah, I would be scared to death. I think. I yeah, it's fairly terrifying. But like once you, I mean, those bikes that they have eight inches of travel, like they, they can roll over a lot. Like you can really mess up, and the bike will save you. Really. Yeah. Well, like, okay. I definitely rode more than. Than I thought I could. Yeah. Well, okay. So you're talking about on road races, seeing so many people, you know, taken away in ambulances and bad crashes and stuff. I mean, what's, in your opinion, what do you think's more dangerous, the road or the mountain bike? Oh, road for sure. Like on a mountain bike, if you hit the ground, it's your own fault. Yeah. 95% of the time, it's your own fault. And so there's a sense of like personal responsibility of like, I'm going to take this risk by riding this feature at this speed. And if you screw up, then there's no one to blame but yourself. Yeah. Versus like on a road race, like every time that I'd gone down, it was because a girl, three people in front of me had gone down and we all just like ran into her. Gotcha. So almost like, like, there's that's not something you can control. Yeah. It's like uncontrollable outside influences. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, and that's... so, I don't know. It was just scary. And, like, I was never strong enough to be able to, like, ride at the front of the group. Like, in road racing, they always say, like, ride at the front and you'll be safe or relatively safe. Yeah. But it's, like, there are, at the time, there were, like, there were big women's teams who rode at the front. And then if you wanted to get up there, like, I didn't I didn't have the skills and strength to do it. So I was always sort of hanging off the back and getting caught up in these crashes and just yeah. not really. Like, I was, like, right on the verge. Like, I probably, if I'd stuck with it, I could have maybe gotten that extra however many percent needed to be able to ride at the front safely, but I just, I quit before I got there. Yeah. 
Well, okay, so let's get into backpacking for a second. Um, can you kind of explain like the concept of bikepacking? I, we did a whole episode with Scott like a few months back, um, which was super cool. And, you know, it just, it sounds like a fascinating, I don't even, like, is it, I guess, would you describe it as a sport or just kind of like an endurance event or? Um, I think bikepacking is sort of a funny word that I don't really use too much anymore. Yeah. Because <laughs> the idea of, of bikepacking is that you go on a mountain bike or any sort of bike and you go into the wilderness on trails, probably. Um, and then you go camp and then you get up the next morning and you ride some more and you camp. So it's like, it's basically backpacking with a bike. Yeah. Is I think the original, um, definition of it, I guess you want to say, but the thing is, it's like, you can say, well, that's what bike touring is. And people have been bike touring since the dawn of bicycles. Like people have been strapping sleeping bags onto their bikes, putting four panniers on and going places. And I think it's just recently that, uh, people have been putting this stuff on mountain bikes and taking mountain bikes on trails to sort of get into more wildernessy areas. And so that's sort of what bikepacking originally was defined as, like sort of off the beaten path. But then, of course, it's grown. It's like now people call Tour Divide, which is a race from border to border, or actually from Banff, Canada, down to the Mexican border, which isn't 95% on gravel roads. Okay. They call that a quote unquote bike packing race. And it's like, well, if you define bike packing as like single track has to be involved, then it's not really. Yeah. It's just semantics. Yeah. So now I, I don't say bike packing because I feel like there's like an elitist, somewhat of an elitist thing of like, oh, I'm being like hardcore grinding hard trails if I'm bike packing. So I, I just call it all bike touring now. That's cool. Yeah. Do you guys still do <laughs> it? Regardless of... Well, I know you you mentioned oh, yeah. riding the Tour Divide. Like, do you want to... So you did that race? So I raced that in 2012. Yes. Okay. How'd that go? It was good. It was good. I set... I ended up setting a women's record on it, which was my goal. Wow. Um, I did it in, I think it was 19 days and five hours. So it's 2,700 miles, or 2,730, something along those lines. Um, since then, the record was broken twice by Rail Wilcox, okay. who absolutely crushed it. Like, I think her time, she did it in like 15 days and change, maybe wow. low 16. How much are you she sleeping? She did it so fast. Yeah, like, are you sleeping at all? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so... I mean, through, like, Canada and Montana, I was sleeping, and Wyoming, I was sleeping probably, like, four to five hours a night. Okay. And then in Colorado, I just remember it was near Winter Park, sort of, like, crumbling. That, uh, I was climbing, going up this climb, so it's crumbling and just falling asleep, so I drank a five-hour energy. And five-hour energies are so bad for your body. <laughs> you know, they're so bad. And I was still falling asleep, so I was like, oh, well, I'll just drink another one. Oh, my God. And so I drank another five-hour energy, which is so bad for your body. And I was still falling asleep, so I was like, ugh. Yeah. I need a nap. So I like, laid down and then, like, on the side of the road and slept for, like, a couple hours. But after that, I, I started to sleep a little more just because I couldn't maintain yeah. that sleep schedule. But, I mean, Lail just, I'm not, I think she slept a decent amount. She's just super good at never stopping. And like, I think it's sort of become, like, as, yeah. I, like the, that's the culture of like bike packing. Cause I feel like 
tour divide during my year and prior to my year and maybe even the year after my year, like it was sort of a commonly accepted thing that like once a day you sit down at a restaurant in town and you eat a full meal that you somehow like needed that to like reset your body. And so like every time I came to town, like I sat down and ate a full meal versus Lael never, I think she sat down for actual food like once in Pie Town, New Mexico, because like someone like pressured her into it, but she got everything to go and she ate everything on the bike. And she, I'm pretty sure when she raced, she did it twice in one summer, broke my record both times. But, uh, she was just, I, I think the first time maybe she stayed, I don't think she stayed in a single hotel. Maybe she stayed in one, but she, the thing is like hotels are really nice. So you get to like rinse off, you get to like eat your French fries while watching TV or whatever, <laughs> but they, there's such a time suck. Yeah. And she was able to, like, she trimmed all the fat off of that record. Like, there's very little. You've got to pedal your bike really fast if you want to break that record. Yeah. And you have to be okay it's with, like, insane. being covered in mud for 20 or whatever, 15 days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's so awesome. But, like, yes, I did that in 2012. Okay. What, uh. And it was. Yeah, what, like, from cool. there, I mean. I'm just trying to wrap my head around going from doing like a couple hour mountain bike races to being like, okay, now I'm going to do this for days at a time. I mean, it was, it was definitely a progression for me. Yeah. And so like I went from, I spent one summer doing just purely cross country mountain bike races, which were just two hour, go to a ski resort, climb up the ski resort to send back down and repeat like three times or whatever it is. Um, and then there's a race in Breckenridge called the uh, Firecracker 50, which is over 4th of July weekend, which is a 50-mile race. And at the time, it was uh, – that year is uh, Marathon National Championships. And I, t- I signed up pretty much on a whim. I don't even I'm, – I'm sure someone talked me into it. I don't even know why. But uh, I ended up six, and I was like, oh, that's pretty good. That's cool. <laughs> but then it turned out that Jenny's <laughs> – Jenny Smith, who lives in Gunnison, um, she's actually not a U.S. citizen. She's, uh, I think, I think she's a Kiwi, maybe. I think Kiwi, maybe Australian. She's, she's, but I'm not a U.S. citizen. And so they're like, oh, you're, you weren't actually eligible to uh, race in our quote-unquote national championships. And they're like, Esther, that makes you fifth. <laughs> and so like I got on the podium of a national championship <laughs> event, and I was like, whoa. That's so cool. Yeah. I was like, maybe because like, I was a pretty mediocre cross-country racer. Like, I had a pro license, which you pay USA Cycling way too much money to have a license that says elite on it. But like, I'm sort of like middle of the pack, bottom of the pack pro, like never really anything super exceptional. And this was like, wow, it's like a race that's like over four hours. Like, I'm actually pretty okay. And so the next summer, I ended up signing up for a whole bunch of 100-mile races. And uh, I want to say that at the 100-mile distance, I never got beat. Nice. And this was a whole, like, one summer, at least that summer. Yeah. So, I mean, I, so the, the data point, there aren't that many data points, but I had a really, I was su- going super fast that summer. How, how long then, does a 100-miler take you on the mountain bike? It's usually, like, 6 to 10 hours, depending on the course. Okay. 
Maybe seven to ten. Six is really fast. Seven are, to ten hours. Are most of them like mostly single track or are they a mixture of dirt roads or fire roads? They're, they're usually a combo because like 100 miles on pure single track. Yeah. Unless it's super fast single track would take a really long time. That's what, like, I've tried, I've mountain biked um, quite a few times since I've seen, since I went for that run with you guys. And mm-hmm. I'm so slow and terrible at it. But, like, it's a skill, you know, you build the skill up as you go. So each time I see myself improving. Right. But, like, on single track, I'm like, man, I'm going, like, I can almost run this faster than I can bike it, you know? Oh, we're going, like, Scott Scott and I will go, like, I'll go running and he'll ride. And nine times out of ten, I'm faster uphill on foot than he is on a bike. (laughs) Again, if the trail is technical, like, I'm faster downhill, too. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) That's crazy. Yeah, Yeah, so, okay, so, uh, like, when did you guys meet? When did you meet Scott, like, in this journey? Scott and I met in, what year was that? I want to say spring of 2012 because my plan was to uh, race a 24 hours old Pueblo, which is a 24 hour race down in Tucson in February. And I was just going to do it as, as a training race. And the guy who I was going to race it with bailed on me. Seriously, like two weeks out, like something super lame. Yeah. And I was like, oh man, like I didn't want to race it solo because like that's like that, that racing a solo 24 is not like a fitness builder. It's definitely a big withdrawal from the energy banks while raising a duo can sort of be construed as building fitness. But uh, Scott actually stepped in. Like I knew him because he ran trackleaders.com, which is the tracking company that tracked um, the Colorado trail race. And so I knew him just through the bike packing scene, I guess. Like I knew of him. I read his blog. I saw he lived in Tucson and Tucson looked amazing. Um, but he had, he somehow through the grapevine had heard that I was out of partner and emailed me and was like, Hey, I live in Tucson. I'm, I'm sort of fit. Like I'll be happy to, uh, come race with you if you need a partner. And so that was when we actually met. And then we just stayed friends for quite a few years before we ended up getting together. Yeah. So yeah. And then that's how we met. We ended up racing. That's cool. <laughs> That's cool. And you realize like, hey, this guy's good, like fun to race with and stuff like it wasn't because I'm sure you've raced in the past where you are racing with someone. You're like, oh, this is not a good matchup. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, Scott's just he's a good human being. Yeah. And like we definitely like he was living in Salida one summer when I was living in Crested Butte and we ended up riding a bunch together. Oh, that's cool. And we were, we were just good friends for a long time, which I think is a good yeah. Good basis for a relationship. Yeah. Well, and then, so you guys, I guess, could you kind of explain, like, you guys live basically nomadic, um, exploring all these wild areas, all these wilderness areas. Um, can you kind of, like, get into that a little bit? Like, how did that idea come up? And, yeah, like, what's, I guess, I really want to know, like, what's a day-to-day for you guys? What's that like? <laughs> I mean, so I guess we'll start with how we got into what we call quote unquote hashtag scamp life. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, because it's like hashtag band life, right? Like band life is so hip right now. We are, the scamp is definitely not an object of people's desire. It's so more, it's, it's those, it's, an, it's one of those uh, fiberglass trailers yeah. that look like an egg. 
And so there is nothing sexy about this camp. Like Sprinter vans, sexy. Scamps, not sexy. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, how did you get into scamp life then? So we, so Scott works remotely because he runs track leaders. And so he can work wherever. And I ended up getting a job being a copy editor where I could work remotely. And so we were doing this sort of the type of life where we'd spend six months in Tucson. And we had a lease, a six-month lease on a house in Tucson. And then in the summer, we'd go up to Colorado and either find places to house it or to, or we'd travel in just our minivan. Also, hashtag minivan life, not sexy. (laughs) (laughs) So we always did like the half and half because Tucson gets like unbearably hot in the summer. Okay. And so we'd leave in April and come back in November for work. But then at one point in time, the, uh, the woman who we were leasing the house from was, because in the summer she would like do Airbnb or sublease it or whatever. Like she always took care of it because she liked us as tenants. And then eventually she was like, you know, it's not worth my time to try to get people in for the summer. Like I want people to sign a full year lease and we're like, e, we're not going to do that. And so that's when we were like, well, let's, let's look into our options for like full on mobile living. And we looked at our V's, like the idea of our V's. We looked at Sprinter vans. And we looked at like the fully tricked out, like solar powered, fancy, like Sprinters that go for like $80,000. And we're like, cool, that's not really in our budget. Yeah. But uh, we sort of like, we looked at the way, I think there's like this impulsive thing. And then like, that people are like, oh, I want to live a mobile life. I need to buy a van. And it's like, well, I think there's a lot of things you have to consider when you, like, I fully endorse mobile life. I think it's the greatest thing ever. But it's like, a van isn't the best situation for everyone. It's because, like, for a solo person, fully get a van. But, like, for us, the way we normally operate is we go to a place and we we hang out for a week or two. And since there's two of us and we don't necessarily want to always do things together, um, having, like, a, a trailer that we can drop and then have one person hang out at the trailer or do something from the trailer and then have the other person be able to drive somewhere. It's huge. Yeah. Or being able to like leave the trailer in the woods and like drive to the grocery store. It's huge. And so we like, we settled on like, let's buy a trailer that we can tow and sort of like see how it goes. And like, we weren't fully convinced that like, cause we'd spent the previous summer just living under the van and camping. And like, it was like, there were times when it was annoying, but it wasn't like, our question was like, is it worth having like this dry inside warm space? Like is a trade-off of like having to tow a trailer and park a trailer worth that trade-off of like the simplicity of just the van and the tent. And so we wanted to do it like as cheaply as possible. So we found the, these, we have a minivan, which we call a sports van. And we found these scamps only weigh a thousand pounds at 13 footers, only weigh a thousand pounds. Our our van was actually able to tow it. So we were able to put this whole setup together pretty cheaply and be like, well, if we like it in a year, we can always upgrade. We can always get a bigger tow vehicle, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But, uh, so about two years ago, we bought this thing down in, uh, is Arizona, which is about two hours from Tucson. And we moved into it about a month later and haven't really looked back. That's so cool. And so you guys are just staying in like, uh, like, like not, where are you staying? Like Bureau of Land Management areas or what? I mean, it depends. Like when we are in Tucson, we have this like campground that we love to stay at because it's pretty close to town. So we pay for camping here a lot of the time. 
Um, other times we'll stay on national forest land, we'll stay on BLM land, we'll stay at campgrounds, um, we'll park in front of friends' houses sometimes. Yeah. I guess that's legal in whatever city or town they're in. <laughs> but uh, it's <laughs> it's pretty much everywhere. The thing is, like, um, there's so much land that's open to dispersed camping, but it's it's never really an issue to find some place to camp for a little bit. Yeah, and there's I, a 14 day limit on on most of these places, so we like we can stay at a place for two weeks and explore. Yeah, I don't think people really fully understand that with public lands. Like you're allowed on a lot of them just to go out and camp, and you know, mm-hmm. that's crazy. Yeah. That's so cool. Like, can you kind of kind of explain that a little bit? I mean, I know there's differences between national forests and state parks and all that stuff. Do you know like kind of the some like simple rules of those i mean the it's public land like you own it i own it we all own it which is like which is why we need to fight to protect it because like people in the government right now are working really hard to uh put public lands under private control which would be devastating to a lot of people on a lot of level i mean not just for like camping but just in part as far as like protecting these lands for future generations yeah, because once um, once general, once it's like once it's taken away, there's not really precedence of it of land being given back as public land. You know what I mean? Oh no! Once once it it goes out of federal control, it's game over. Like yeah. even state lands are because like there's uh, there's land that's state controlled, and uh, at least in Arizona and Utah, there's a lot of the state controlled land is used to fund education. Yeah, but basically the state has full jurisdiction over it. like the one that if the state wants to sell it to a developer that's awesome like but then it can be developed yeah like it was whatever the state decides is like with the best economic use of that land that's allowed to do that so that's like state controlled land is like sort of public land but not really public land yeah versus like blm land and national forest land is uh it's federally controlled and is protected from a lot of types of development yeah. and so that's i mean you guys have right. been in some um, oh, crazy places like moab um recently i don't even know where you guys were recently but like <laughs> somewhere in utah with all these crazy <laughs> rock formations and like it's just so beautiful and a lot of people don't get to witness and experience these places yeah like it's the type of thing is like a lot of people don't um realize what we stand to lose if we're going to, if we lose public lands and like, even like I, I'm guilty of it because, uh, the Bears Ears national monument has been in the news a lot recently because Trump's re- threatening to reduce the size of it. And, uh, I never really understood like I, I knew where it was. I knew it was sort of like central Utah. And I was like, what is like, I never really understood what, what was in that area. Cause I, I had never been, and so this earlier this fall, we were like, well, we have to, we have to go from point A to point B, and that sort of goes through this Bears Ears area. Let's go check it out. And we just spent four days sort of dorking around there, and it, it is just filled with archaeological ruins and beautiful canyons, and just like there's places where there's just like still pottery shards and these ruins. And to me, it was like, oh, this is why we need to protect this. Like even me, like the like rah rah public lands, like I never I didn't fully understand 
what was so special about this area until I was there. And I think that that's a big issue is that people sort of have this like, oh, well, public lands, that's great. But like until you go out there and you experience them, like I don't think you people feel quite as, they don't understand the importance of protecting them. Yeah. Well, and then, but then as like, as soon as you visit those areas, you automatically have this like emotional attachment there, which is why like, you know, he's kind of, it's kind of cool. Like you guys, even with your Instagram where you're taking these beautiful pictures, you're promoting the idea of like getting out there and like experiencing these places and having adventures. And that's really important. No, I think it is. I think there's a, there are people who are very like, oh, don't share my secret spots with people because I don't want people going there versus I'm very much like, no, like I'm going to post pictures of these places because I want people to go there. I want people yeah. to care about them. I want people to be willing to fight for them. Yeah. That's funny. Like, if you don't know what's in an area, you're not going to care about it. Yeah. That's funny. Cause even going into the podcast, I'm like, should I even ask her about these cool places? <laughs> Cause I was wondering <laughs> if you're, if you're like, you know, yeah, that's true. Some people do. They're kind of like, this is my secret spot. You know, I don't want other people there, yeah. but I mean, I even see it here cause I'm on the front range of Colorado and you know, like it's overcrowded and there's just a, a lot of people here and a lot of the people mm-hmm. have moved here to do all these fun outdoor activities. And so, you know, when I go out on a trail on the weekend and there's a whole bunch of people, you know, part of me wants to be like curmudgeon and be like, Oh, I wish I was out here by myself, you know? But the, mm-hmm. the other part of me is like, well, I mean, how cool is this? Like everyone's out here to experience this beautiful spot and you know we're all out yeah. here to do the kind of the same thing so it's a and the thing is like if there weren't there aren't those people out there recreating that land would have never been preserved yeah exactly that that land would be developed into houses by now if people didn't care yeah exactly so. well i kind of want to <laughs> uh wrap up the show by hearing about uh you and scott are preparing to go to new zealand uh can, yes. can I hear a bit about that? <laughs> um, it's, it's, I call it my, uh, it's going to be my mental health break for the winter because our scamp is, if you want to be generous about it, it's 360 cubic feet in area or in volume, but it's actually, it's a 60 square foot little thing. And when it gets dark at 5 PM and doesn't get light until 7:30 in the morning, that's a lot of time to spend in a small space with another human being. <laughs> and so we're going down to the Southern hemisphere to, uh, to keep our sanity yeah but we went down last year to bike tour and we're going to go back down we're going to take our bikes and we don't really have a set plan of what exactly we're going to do but we're going to build our bikes at the airport or at a friend's house and start riding yeah are you, are you camping yeah so new zealand also has a pretty solid public land it's the department of conservation they have a lot of public lands that you can camp for free on if you know the rules, which you have to dig for the rules, but they, they are there. Um, but yeah, we'll camp and we'll stay in hostels and yeah. That's so cool. For how many months? We have two, we're going to be there for two months. And so we're going to be on either four weeks on either side of the solstice pretty much. Oh, that's so cool. cool. Yeah. That's a, (laughs) that's one way to do it. You know, like some people move to like Florida for the winter, you know, but, uh, you might as well just go full Southern hemisphere. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, it's like once you get down there, like New Zealand isn't that expensive. Like the dollar is super strong right now. So the exchange rate is pretty okay. Yeah. 
and it's, I don't know, like the cost of a plane ticket is a lot, but in the end, like in the grand scheme of life, like when we're deciding whether to go or not this year, though, are we going to, when we're old and gray, if we get to be old and gray someday, um, are we going to remember being going down to New Zealand for two months? Or are we going to remember like sitting in this camp watching movies, waiting for the sun to come up? Yeah. And it's like, well, New Zealand is, is going to make more memories for sure. Definitely. And so might as well, might as well go. Heck yeah. That's going to be so cool. Uh, <laughs> If I guess I have like last question to wrap up the podcast, I've been asking people this lately um, because I feel like there's so many parts of your story that people could draw inspiration from. Um, and I'm sure, you know, like you're an inspiring person and I'm inspired even just listening to all these amazing adventures you've had. But how could people turn that inspiration into like action in their own lives? Um. You know, I think the biggest the biggest thing is you don't need much to go out and have an adventure. Like people will ask me, Oh, what bike do I need to go bike packing? And I'll be like, Whatever bike you have. <laughs> like yeah. if you really just want like if you want to see if you enjoy bike packing, so like take whatever bike you have, find some cheap rack that you can buy at any bike store, get a dry bag, stuff a sleeping bag in there and go. Like that's you don't need a fancy bike. You don't need a bike packing specific bike. You don't need the lightest, greatest, best gear. Like, just go. And, like, your backpacking is even simpler. Like, you have a backpack, stuff a sleeping bag in there in a pad, and go. I think there's this idea that you need to have all the latest gear to uh, do stuff, but you don't. Like, you just need the motivation to, like, get out the front door and go. And people need to not use the excuse of, oh, I don't have the gear to not do something. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. That's awesome. Um I would be absolutely honored to talk to you guys after your New Zealand adventure. Sure. <laughs> That'd be so cool. Yeah, we'll be back in February sometime. All right. I guess January 31st. Oh, sweet, sweet. Yeah. Well, enjoy, and uh, yeah, we'll get back to you, Esther. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. <laughs> All right, have a good one. Okay. All right, that wraps up the show this week. Um, thank you so much, Esther. You're awesome. I would love to catch up after your adventures in New Zealand and just kind of get the perspective of outdoor adventure in a different, like totally different country, you know, a totally different part of the world. Uh, I would love to hear, you know, what's similar, what's completely different, um, what kind of beautiful areas you guys were able to explore. So, Thank you so much for coming on the show and thank you guys for listening. And I, I know it's kind of the kickoff to the holiday season and it's going to be busy. Um, I've recorded a few, a few episodes of the podcast now just to kind of have a few in the bank. Um, because like I said, my commitment is to consistently put these out every single week and I don't plan on, falling back on that commitment at this point so yeah so i have uh next week's episode already recorded it's a really good one um it was the first time i went on the road for the podcast um i recorded it and by on the road i mean like 10 minutes from my house but i went to uh the feral mountain store in denver and uh and we i recorded it with the um the person who who opened it it's feral mountain company it's on tennyson street uh his name's Jin, jimmy funkhauser and we kind of recorded the story of him quitting his comfy job and 
deciding to start an outdoor shop in uh in Colorado. So a uh, fascinating story. We recorded it in the basement surrounded by rental tents and rental sleeping bags and all that fun stuff. So it was an interesting experience and uh, I'm excited to share that with you guys next week. Um, but yeah, like I said at the beginning of the podcast, I mean, holiday seasons can be stressful. Family dynamics can be stressful, but uh, but cherish them, man. Like cherish them. Just like everything, they're... Uh, experiences that you're lucky enough to have right now and you're not you might not always you might look back on this time fondly even though in the moment you might be stressed you might be you know frustrated but uh but yeah these might be times you look back on with a smile on your face when uh when you're not able to have these moments anymore and uh much love goes out to everybody who's listening to the podcast, um, especially a few people in my life who, who have gone through some rough times lately. Uh, you know, you guys are amazing. You're my inspiration every single day. Um, and thank you for everything you've brought to my life. And I hope that you guys can find some peace, uh, in this holiday season. So anyways, uh, we'll get back at you next week and, uh, yeah, go get them, go have an adventure, go have an adventure with people you love and, uh, yeah, you'll love every moment of it. See ya.